um, when I was still out greeting folks in the lobby, but um, Tuesday is four years since the fire in paradise. We prayed about that uh, up in paradise this morning, but I guess I just wanted to encourage you guys, knowing that there's a mix. There's some of y'all that experienced loss in paradise during the fire. There's others of you that were here in Chico, and I just want to encourage you to draw near to each other this week. And especially those of you guys that maybe didn't experience loss in the campfire, like on Tuesday, be prayerful. Reach out to a brother or sister you know that might be grieving that, knowing that that day has come. Let's care for each other as a body and definitely be prayerful on that day um, as November 8th comes around again this year. As a matter of fact, let me pray for that right now. Father, I pray that you would allow us as a body to grieve with those who grieve and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And Lord, knowing that we have a, a mixed group here at Vespers of those who will feel, be feeling the hurt heavy on Tuesday and others that might not as much, I just pray, God, that you would draw us near together providentially to be able to comfort one another, to be able to remind one another of the sweet promises that we have in Christ. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, guys, we need to jump right in. So I'm going to ask if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word. It is Romans chapter 11. We're looking at verses 7 through 16 tonight. It picks up right in the middle of kind of this ongoing wrestling that the Apostle Paul has with this question of Israel. The question of why is it that so many fellow Israelites have not followed Jesus? And you might be thinking to yourself, Josh, we've, we've answered that question like multiple times in the last few weeks. It's true, we have, but it turns out it's complicated. And there's lots of approaches to this answer. It's almost like that each week we're getting a different piece of a puzzle. And this week is a new piece of the puzzle that's filling out the picture even more for us. So... If you would follow along with me as I read this out loud for us, God's word starting in Romans eleven seven, 7 says this, what then Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the whole world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth 
the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight as we, as we meditate on your word. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask and pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys go ahead and be seated. As I was saying before we read the text, we've kind of asked and answered this question of Israel a lot. All the way back two months ago when we started in on Romans chapter 9. We saw, we saw the, the answer to the question be at one point that we needed to understand that not all outward Israel is actually inward Israel. And that the promise of God given to Abraham and his descendants only applies to those who have embraced God's covenant from the heart and not aren't just merely descendants outwardly. That was what we looked at months ago. And then fast forward last week, we had another kind of answer to the question. This time it was Paul saying, God hasn't rejected his people Israel because I'm an Israelite. I'm a child of Abraham and here I am standing in the light of the gospel. And not just me, there are thousands of others that God by his grace have preserved as a remnant so that we can properly say that he is still being faithful to his people, Israel. So those are two pieces of the puzzle that we've seen already, but tonight there's another one that's added and it's a big one. Maybe we could even say a wild one. It has to do with jealousy and how jealousy and the sovereignty of God in this particular instance is actually a good thing. Because through that, not just the Israelites, but the Gentiles, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be welcomed into God's covenant so that Jew and Gentile alike will stand for all eternity praising the triune God. That's the answer to the question of Israel that Paul gives us here. Now, before we kind of get to the place where that becomes very obvious, we kind of got to go backwards and do a little bit of, of groundwork for the first few verses that we saw. So for instance, right out of the gate, we have this question, what then? And then we have some words that we've encountered before that we've said out loud at church are kind of difficult for us to grapple with. Paul says the elect obtained what they were seeking, but the rest were hardened. And all of a sudden I'm having flashbacks to a few weeks ago when me and Pastor Brian preached on Romans nine and those passages that talk about God having mercy on whom he will and not having mercy on whom he won't. We wrestled with that a few weeks ago and we, we, we asked all the questions of how is that fair and how is that true of a loving God and what does this mean about free will? I can't re-preach that sermon today because already I'm kind of tight on time. So I'll have to commend you if you missed that or if you're curious about that to check that out online and see what we said about it a few weeks ago. But I bring it up here because once again, we have this, this language about election, about predestination, about God hardening hearts, which is so difficult. But this time it's applied to those people of Israel that aren't part of that remnant called by grace that we spoke about last week. But instead in God's sovereignty are hardened against the grace of the gospel. 
It's hard to say that out loud, but the reality is it is the, the logical sort of conclusion of what we talked about last time. If God has called a remnant purely by his grace, like we saw in the verses last week, and remember it told us it's by grace, not by works or else grace wouldn't be grace. Purely by God's sovereign grace, if he's called this chosen remnant, then it means that those who aren't part of the remnant were people that were not equally called by his grace. People that the text has told us were hardened in their hearts against God, what God was doing in the Messiah. Paul even adds for us some Old Testament scriptures to really drive the point home. The first one was from the prophet Isaiah and actually a little bit of Deuteronomy as well. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Whoa. Then he quotes the Psalms. King David, speaking about his own people, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. That probably sounds a little odd, the table imagery, but the idea is this, the table that God has set for his covenant people that is filled with such bountiful blessings, such beautiful blessing of being part of God's covenant people has actually become a stumbling block for them. Instead of producing gratitude and thanksgiving and humility, it's been an occasion for pride and presumption. And their privileges as Israel has actually made them blind to being able to see the grace of God revealed in Jesus. So once again, we have these difficult matters popping up about God's sovereignty and election. And like I said a second ago, I'm not gonna be able to re-preach that sermon on this matter today, but we had to say it because so much of our text is caught up with revisiting that. Now, the thing that Paul wants to sort of wrestle with right on the tail of this is, is not so much some of the questions we asked previously about how is this fair or how does this play in with the free will of a human. And actually the objection that Paul wants to kind of bring back up again is one that we did name before, and that has to do with the arbitrariness of this, the randomness of it, or maybe somebody, a cynic would say the pointlessness of it. Sometimes it feels that uh, election is just a game of eeny, meeny, miny, mo. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Although eeny, meeny, miny, mo does have some rhyme or reason to it. I remember that was a, an epiphany for me when I realized if you chose who started first on that, you could predict who was gonna be chosen. Did I just blow y'all's mind? Did y'all not know that? <laughs> well, anyways, so verse 11, Paul says this. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? I.e., is this just arbitrary and pointless and chaotic? Does Israel, those that are hardened and not part of the remnant, do they, did they just trip up for the sake of tripping up? Is that what God wanted? No. In fact, we've got our favorite phrase in Romans right after that question, by no means, no way, Jose. This is not just blind chaos. This is not just random capriciousness of God. There is purpose and design in what is happening here. 
and it's glorious. Here's what I mean. The very next phrase right after that, it's the back half of verse 11, it says this, rather through their trespass, that is the, the hardened Israelites, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Let that sink in for a second. Before I tell you what I think about this, what do you think that means? The, the rejection of the Israelites of the Messiah, their hardened heart towards the gospel has made the way for the Gentiles to enter in. Whoa. Their hardness of heart has made it where people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, those of non-Jewish descent, all of a sudden have an open door to be near to God and enjoy the blessings of his covenant. Let me, put it, let me put it in more practical terms. If you are here and you're somebody that does not have Jewish descent, the only reason that you are able to be here worshiping God in spirit and truth is in part because the hardened Israelites opened the door for you to be able to come in. Whoa. And I'm acting shocked by this, you know, reading this in the text, but the reality is I shouldn't because if I had been paying attention to Jesus in the gospels, I would have seen this time and time and time again. So many of Jesus's parables end with this point. They end with one people rejecting him and that therefore opening the door for another group of people to be able to draw near to him. So there's parable of the tenants where Jesus says there's a, a, an owner of a vineyard who lets it out to these tenants, these renters, on the condition that they give him some of the, the fruit that's born. But they don't do it. They don't live up to their end of the bargain. And so the owner of the vineyard sends a messenger and they beat the messenger and send him away. The owner of the vineyard sends another messenger and they beat him too and send him away. Then finally, the owner of the vineyard says, you know what I'll do? I'll send my only son, wink, wink. And they reject him and they kill him. And Jesus's conclusion to that parable is, what will the owner of the vineyard do now? He will cast out those disobedient tenants and he will let out the vineyard to others. There's a, a parable right after that one, the parable of the wedding feast, the great banquet. The Lord of the land is throwing this incredible feast and he sends out invitations to all the important people in the land to come to celebrate, to feast with him. And most of them make up excuses as to why they can't go. They say, nah, we're not gonna do that. We've got things going on that night. You know, basically when I call and ask you to hang out, the excuses that you give to me, that's what they did in this parable. And the, and the master, though, that's created this banquet, he just doesn't call it off. He says, okay, go out to the highways and the byways, find anybody you can and invite them into my banquet. The farmers, the peasants, the random people on the side of the road, tell them to come and celebrate with me. We see it in the teaching of Jesus so often that the rejection of the Israelites of the gospel, the rejection of Christ actually will open the door for a Gentile like me to be welcomed into the covenant and to celebrate with him. Whew. 
But wait, there's more. It gets even better than that. Because check this out. I read this to you already, but I didn't talk about that last little phrase here because we're told through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. But then watch this. So as to make Israel what? Jealous. If we left it right out there, that probably wouldn't be a very good thing. It would be like, ah, hey, we're in and you're not. You're jealous of us, the end. No, that's not it. Because if we look down a little bit further, I'm going to read in verse 13 now. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my mystery in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. The purpose of the jealousy, the purpose of stirring up this desirous of, I want that, and the Jews is so that they might be saved. This is just mind-blowing to me when I think about how this is described in the word that, that what the Bible is saying is that when Gentiles like us are welcomed near and close to the covenant of God, that the Israelites that haven't received Jesus, they take notice and they begin to notice things like the abundant life in Christ. They begin to notice things like trusting in God's grace alone and not in the law anymore. They begin to notice how in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. And as they see it, they say, we want that. They say, that should be us. That's our birthright. That's what we were being lined up for. And now these Gentiles are enjoying it and we want it too. And somehow, some way, God in his providence is able to use jealousy of all things to create this end scenario where both the Gentiles have been welcomed in and a massive influx of Israelites that see what they have and say, we want that too. So that at the end of it all, Jews and Gentiles alike will be praising their God and King. We're gonna see this later in chapter 11, but Paul is anticipating that there is a day in the future where there will be a massive ingathering of ethnic Israelites who love Jesus and are following him. That day is coming. And amazingly, what I'm being told is that it'll be seeing like a church like this that'll be part of what God uses to melt that hardness of heart and bring revival amongst the Israelites to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, there are two takeaways that I wanna spend these last few minutes that I have on here. We've kind of talked through what this text means. Let's, let's apply it in a couple of different ways. First one that I wanna throw out to you is this. It has to do with the roundabout ways of God. So if I, if I had to make an assessment of what we've just described here, God's plan to ultimately bring Jews and Gentiles together, praising him, I would say that it, it's not, what we just read and talked about is not the most efficient way to do it. It's not the most straightforward way. 
I mean, just so you know, what we just described here is that God is gonna accomplish this purpose by hardening the hearts of one group of people that then opens the door for another group of people to come into the covenant. And then the first group of people that had their hearts hardened are gonna get jealous of the second group of people. And then they'll wanna come into the end, everybody's praising God. That's kind of roundabout, right? Instead of a straight line from A to B, that's kind of like a line that goes like this. Very back and forth. And yet here I am saying like, that doesn't look so efficient to me. That looks a little convoluted. And yet reading through Romans 11, it's presented as the perfect, wise, sovereign plan of God. The thing that to me looks like it's two steps forward, two steps back, up, down, sideways, loop-de-loo. And yet that's God's perfect and sovereign plan. So I guess what I want you to think about is how there are things in your life as a believer that feel like you are following God on the path that he's leading in your life. And instead of just being a straight shot from point A to point B, it feels like you are going two steps to the left, two steps to the right, up a ladder, down a ladder, underground for a little bit. Feel like the plans of God in your life are roundabout. And I wanna encourage you and say, that's not a mistake or an accident or a malfunction. It might be that that is exactly the perfect plan of God that looks a lot like what we described here in Romans 11. Roundabout to us, but perfect and wise to him. Could be that you're somebody that's praying for the desire of your heart and saying, Lord, it's right there. Why don't you just take me to it and give that to me? And instead you're going over here first, over there first, down the steps. Could be that you're praying for a friend that you want to know Jesus, that they would come to faith and believe the gospel. And it just feels like constantly they're getting close and then they're backing off. You're you're sharing with them and they're bearing fruit and asking questions and then all of a sudden they move away. God, what is happening? Or in our sanctification, I think is where I see it most of all. I know that God has told me, actually our elder Craig Bulger shared it at the men's breakfast yesterday, Philippians 1.6, that he is going to carry out the work he started in me to completion. And yet it feels like my growth and maturity and holiness is like two steps forward, two steps back. Two steps forward, two steps sideways. A great month and then a month where I fall on my face a lot. Is that inefficient and convoluted and, well, or is it the perfect plan of God that might appear to us to be so roundabout and complicated? but it's actually in his perfect design. Final thing I'm gonna say is this, second takeaway, jealousy. Oh, jealousy we are used to talking about as a bad thing. More often than not it is, but here we saw that jealousy is actually this beautiful thing that might be bringing massive revival amongst the Israelites in the future. But here is what that is predicated upon. 
the Israelites being jealous of what you have. So I ask you, is your relationship with Jesus something that people would be jealous of? Is it? And I'm not saying that to shame you. You might be thinking that my point here is to say, we should all have relationships with Jesus that makes the world just jealous. And if you don't, you need to work harder. No, I'm not saying that. In fact, what I'm trying to do is entice you. I'm not telling you what you should have in your relationship with Jesus, but rather telling you what you could have. It could be better. It could be deeper. It could be more filled with a joy that is abiding, that can't be rattled by the circumstances of the world. It could be articulated by your delight in the good things of God's creation. You could delight in those things through Christ better than anybody else in the world. Your relationships, even when they're hard and difficult, you could navigate in Christ in a way that brings you peace and joy as opposed to stress and fracture and living life like that is what I think Paul means when he says the Israelites will see it and be jealous and they'll say, I want that too. Friends, like I said, I'm not meaning to shame or to say we should do this better. I'm rather trying to tell you that there is more there that I think many of us in here have not taken advantage of. That our relationship with Christ is something that is more joyful and more satisfying than we've probably ever dreamed of. And if you find yourself saying, I don't think anybody would look at my relationship with Jesus and be jealous of it, don't be in despair. Don't be ashamed. Know that he's inviting you into something deeper and that you might be the one one day that part of the people of God look in on your life with Christ and say, I want that. Let me pray for us and we'll head to the table together. Help us, Lord. Help us to be a people that are delighting in Christ to such a degree that the world takes notice and says, I want what they have. Help us to be a people that trust in you and your ways and your paths seem so up and down and sideways. And Lord, ultimately let us be a people that trust that you are bringing great revival to the world and the future is bright. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. In just a moment, we're gonna be set up here to pass